0: We're really developing community solar here at Shiloh Temple and the other gardens that we develop as a way to create a clean energy asset here in the community that's benefiting the people
1: that use it. Minnesota has over 300 megawatts of community solar, enough to power nearly 40,000 homes, a success in allowing residents to share a slice of the sun. One developer in the state aims to do more, however, by recruiting low-income subscribers and ensuring that folks representative of the community are hired to construct its solar arrays. Timothy Denherter-Thomas is General Manager of Cooperative Energy Futures, the only cooperatively owned community solar developer in Minnesota. We spoke recently about his almost complete Shiloh Temple project from the rooftop among its many solar panels in North Minneapolis. I'm John Farrell, director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. It's a beautiful sunny spring day, and the solar panels on this roof here are enough to power about 50 to 60 energy-efficient homes. But it's a different kind of solar array than we normally have in the sense that it doesn't just serve the building below, although it gets some of that electricity. But it also serves over 20 households who have subscribed as members of this community solar array. With me is Timothy Dunherter-Thomas. He's the general manager of Cooperative Energy Futures, which is the developer of this project. We interviewed him over two years ago for our Local Energy Rules podcast when this project was just getting started. Timothy, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I wanted to start off by just helping people understand what this community solar array means. How do you get a share in a community solar array, and what's the benefit?
0: Sure. So to participate in a community solar program, you're subscribing. Essentially, you're getting rights to the bill credits from a certain portion of the energy generated here on the system. So let's say you're a community subscriber. You might sign up for 4% of the total energy that's being produced by the solar array here, and every month on your utility bill, you'll get credited for 4% of the actual energy that's generated. So you're essentially signing up to get credits for your energy production that are offsetting the energy that you
1: use. Thanks, Timothy. So one of the things that's really exciting about Minnesota is that we have over 350 megawatts of installed community solar projects. That's 1,000 times more than is here on this roof at Shiloh Temple. But this project is a little different from a lot of the other ones. So a lot of the other projects are bigger. They're located out in greenfields. I'd like you to just describe for a little bit how this project differs from most community solar projects in terms of its size, its location, but also the level of ownership of its participants.
0: Sure, so about 90% of community solar here in Minnesota is serving commercial and industrial customers, so it's not serving residents at all. Uh, Of the remaining 10% that is serving residential customers, basically all of the other developers that are out there are using a minimum credit score, usually either 680 or 700, as the minimum for who can participate. That essentially means that uh, most low-income families, as well as statistically, uh, most people of color, uh, are excluded from participating in community solar. Again, low-income families tend to spend the highest proportion of their income on energy. So that's essentially saying that the people who have the most to save from the financial benefits of community solar have largely across the state been excluded from participating. This community solar garden, as well as the other community solar gardens that uh, we develop as cooperative energy futures, are different because we don't use a minimum credit score. That means that everyone can actually participate. We've really focused on engaging residents of North Minneapolis, uh, which is a generally low-income community, as subscribers in this garden, really so that the benefits of community solar are staying local. Additionally, we're a cooperative, so we're a member-owned business. That means that as we generate profit from this system, those profits are are really owned by the people who are subscribing. Uh, We distribute that profit to our members based on the amount of energy that they use in the system. So we're really developing community solar here at Shiloh Temple and the other gardens that we develop as a way to create a a clean energy asset here in the community uh, that's
1: benefiting the people that use it. Timothy, I know one other thing that you've done with this project that's relatively unique is around training and hiring so that you had a commitment when we talked previously to train and hire folks in the local community to do this installation. Can you tell me a little bit more about why that was important to you in developing this project and then how that turned out? Yeah, we've seen a a really
0: big expansion of the solar industry, but so far, most of those jobs have not been benefiting people of color and low income people. We see a lot of racial disparities in the workforce around solar, and that's a huge piece of what we want to address uh, as we develop these, these community solar gardens with a justice lens. So we required our installation contractor to use at least 50% minority labor, and actually the installer that we've used, Innovative Power Systems, has, has used a crew that's actually closer to 90% minority labor, including a number of folks from here in North Minneapolis. We have also partnered with a training program to help build people's skills in the solar industry so that more people are qualified for those jobs as we create demand for the hiring.
1: That's great. And it's something I think that a lot of developers, unfortunately, have missed out on, but also as part of a broader conversation that we're seeing in the clean energy economy about how to make sure that people benefit. I think it was you that have brought this up in other conversations we've had, but I have always really appreciated the way that you focus on affordability and access to clean energy, not just from the standpoint of, is it cost effective for me to be a participant, but also how can we lift people up and give them a family supporting job using clean energy, using their skills in the clean energy industry? So it's great to see that that's been part of this project. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots groups. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute to go to ILSR.org and click on the donate button. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, I was mentioning earlier Minnesota has three hundred and fifty megawatts of community solar. What is it that allows that to happen in Minnesota? Why is Minnesota special in being able to have developments of these kinds of projects supporting residents and businesses and not so much in other states?
0: Sure. So it's really because Minnesota has a state law, this is a law that was passed in twenty thirteen that requires the main utility here, Xcel Energy, to connect systems like this to the grid and to provide bill credits at an adequate rate to make the projects financeable. This is really about the key rules that enable community groups and local developers to provide clean energy to the grid and get fair compensation. That's really what enables this, this rapid increase in development here in Minnesota and what enables projects like this. Most states don't have that sort of opportunity that allows many residents and many energy users together to get bill credits from a community solar project that's not located on their own roof. So in Minnesota, we've really been pushing policy that is enabling this type of project to happen.
1: So there are now something like 15 or 16 states that allow for community solar projects or other kinds of community shared energy like this where folks can share bill credits. As other states look to do this, there have been some new states now. Oregon has a pilot. Maryland has a pilot program. What are some elements of Minnesota's policy that you think they should emulate, and what do you think could be improved upon?
0: There's a few really key pieces of the the law here in Minnesota. One is that the utility is required to accept all gardens that qualify, so there's no cap or limit. On the amount of community solar that can be developed, which is really essential if local community-based groups and smaller developers are able to participate, otherwise the capacity just gets rapidly eaten up by whoever is first to the table, which tends to be the larger companies. Second is that the law is really designed so that the program that is approved by the Public Utilities Commission must reasonably allow for the creation, financing, and accessibility of community solar. And that's really key language because it essentially prevents the utility from proposing and the the regulators from approving a program that looks good on paper but just financially doesn't work or really doesn't provide enough value to energy users for anyone to participate in it. So making sure that the programs that are proposed are actually adequate for um, the, the, the financing of these projects and the accessibility of these projects uh, to residents and low-income customers is, is pretty key. So early on in the program, including for projects like this one, the bill credit rate for customers was what was called the applicable retail rate. And it's a really complex set of rates, but it essentially boiled down to a bill credit for residential subscribers on gardens like this of about 16 and a half cents which is recognizing both the value, the retail rate of energy, whatever the customer's paying, as well as the value of the fact that it's renewable energy. And that bill credit rate was really a lot of financial value to people participating and made it very cost effective for developers like us to build systems like this. I don't know that it needed to be quite that high, but really having a rate that is adequate to finance these projects is pretty critical. The challenge that we're facing now is that the state of Minnesota has moved to a value of solar rate, which is supposed to calculate what is the value of solar to the grid, theoretically to society. Um, But it's a very complicated methodology, and it has really become uh, vulnerable to a lot of I think messing around with the methodology that right now has resulted in a much lower financial rate for future gardens that are developed. This garden and several other gardens that we're developing are under the old rate structure But many new gardens here in the state will only be getting $0.10 a kilowatt hour, which is really not adequate to provide cost-effective development for these projects, especially with residential customers. And so I think thinking about, number one, the universal right of developers to put these systems onto the grid and that there's no limit to that as long as they're technically qualified and adequate, but then also that the compensation rates that energy users get being adequate to make it a a good financial deal for them is really key to ensure that the compensation for community solar is fair and that these projects get built.
1: So, Timothy, I imagine you can look around this installation up here with a little bit of pride since it's been a long time in development. I hear that the switch might get flipped as early as next week and the power from these solar panels will start flowing both to the temple beneath us as well as to the different customers What else does Cooperative Energy Futures have in the pipeline?
0: So this is our first project, and it has been about three years of work to get here. So we are very, very glad to be at the the point of operation. But this is really just the first step in a series of eight projects that we have coming. Uh, The second will be starting construction very soon on the Edina Public Works building in Edina. We also have another installation at a church down in Eden Prairie. Four ground mounts in greater Minnesota, including up by St. Cloud, and three in southern Minnesota. And then our final project, which is a very exciting project, is just about two miles from here, which is canopy over ramp A in downtown Minneapolis. And altogether, that's about 6.7 megawatts of solar. So this project is 200 kilowatts. That's roughly 35 times that amount. And we'll be providing power uh, for about 700 households across the state.
1: I have to say on a personal note, I'm very excited about the ramp A project as a potential subscriber, but also just for its visibility in the sense that it's a uh, the parking ramp right next to the Twins stadium where the Minnesota Twins baseball team plays. So I'm hoping that it will also be a way to help feature solar for folks who might not have been aware of it previously. Timothy, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank
0: you. Thank you for having me.
1: This is John Farrell, director of ILSR's Energy Democracy Initiative. I was speaking with general manager, Timothy Denherder thomas about Cooperative Energy Future's first completed cooperatively owned community solar project in Minnesota. For more information on which states offer community solar and stories of successful projects, check out our Community Power Map, available at ILSR.org. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 50 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.